I'm Scott Paul, and this is the Manufacturing Report. So right now, Beijing is explicitly using COVID-19 as a moment of strategic opportunity, a moment to claim increased global market share, to buy up strategic assets that are depreciated, to make the world that much more reliant on its capital, on its resources, and on its industrial production. As Congress contemplates investing about $1.5 trillion in infrastructure projects to rebuild America's crumbling roads, bridges, and airports, China is watching and poised to lay claim to those U.S. taxpayer dollars. A new study by researchers Emily de la Briere and Nathan Pisarchik of Horizon Advisory reveals that China is preparing to infiltrate U.S. infrastructure projects leveraging its early recovery from the pandemic to exploit America's vulnerabilities, as it did during the 2008 financial crisis. Next on the Manufacturing Report, my conversation with the co-founders of Horizon Advisory on how China could plunder the millions of valuable jobs America's infrastructure projects are meant to spark. Nate and Emily, welcome to the Manufacturing Report. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Scott. You bet. So before we get started, I thought it might be helpful to share with our listeners how you came to work on issues related to China, the intentions of the Chinese Communist Party, the military leaders there, and how that intersects with American national security, technology, economic interests. And we'll start with Nate. Nate, what brought you to this work and ultimately to Horizon Advisory and your partnership with Emily? Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today. My background started in national security analysis, so working in defense intelligence type questions and looking at the array of national security challenges that are out there on the horizon. I ended up focusing a good deal of my time on China and gradually ended up focusing on China's private sector as a potentially misunderstood or overlooked or vastly important actor in even the national security realm. And in doing that, I came to appreciate just how centralized, how intentional and deliberate Chinese industrial policy is and the threats that that pose for the national security defense industrial base and for broader U.S. economic interests. Thanks, Nate. And with that, let's shift to Emily. Emily, what brought you to this place? The short version of this answer is that I am not a fun party guest. (laughs) The longer version is that I spend pretty much all of my time buried in the Chinese sources. And I have for some time. So just reading what it is that China is saying, not necessarily in official speeches, but in authoritative strategic discourse, in the really boring policy documents, in strategic texts published by people who have a voice in the party or the government system. And it became pretty apparent pretty quickly doing this that China is explicit about competing with the U.S. for global control, and they're explicit about doing this in a new kind of way that just isn't recognized in the West. And my focus and my approach, pretty complementary, as Nate just pointed out with his, so we've ended up just working on this subject and trying to put out there what it is that China's saying and doing that at a scale and with a volume that might actually register. Absolutely. And just so our listeners know, 
Your work has been in incredible demand. I mean, you've testified before at least one congressional committee before the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. You've done some work there for some other governmental agencies and are frequently quoted as experts on this. And so our listeners know, full disclosure, the report that you released earlier in June, When the Iron is Hot, the Chinese Communist Party's Subversion of U.S. Recovery Investment, is a work that AAM commissioned, but it is very much aligned with all of the independent research that you have done over the last 18 to 24 months and longer for both the public and to inform policymakers. So with that, I did want to return to this report. And I think it comes at a critical time because we are contemplating measures on how to get the U.S. economy back on track. And there's obviously a regulatory, a legislative response to that. There'll be a private sector response. But what should we be looking out for from a national security, economic security point of view when it comes to Beijing and what they're looking for and kind of what they've done in the past to, frankly, kind of exploit a crisis to gain an advantage. And maybe, Emily, we'll start with you and and we can then kick it over to Nate. Absolutely. So the first and really the orienting principle is that China uses industrial policy and industrial positioning in order to compete internationally. The next B is that China takes advantage of moments of global crisis or downturn or distraction to accelerate its industrial positioning and its industrial strategy. And so right now, Beijing is explicitly using COVID-19 as a moment of strategic opportunity, a moment to claim increased global market share, to buy up strategic assets that are depreciated, to make the world that much more reliant on its capital, on its resources, and on its industrial production. We can, in the very immediate, as we're putting money into, say, infrastructure, that's precisely the area that China is going to be targeting and where it's positioned to not only benefit from the funds that the government is putting into this, but also to use that in order to acquire greater influence over our system. And as you just pointed out, like this isn't a new approach. This is a well-trained playbook that China largely developed after and during the 2008-2009 financial crisis, when it accelerated all of its strategic positioning. The great example is Huawei, whose position in rural telecoms in the U.S., can largely be attributed to U.S. investment in rural telecoms right during and after the financial crisis. But China has also done this at other points in the past decade. When global commodity prices dropped in 2015, China accelerated its investments in mines globally. That's where a huge percentage of its footprint in those critical raw inputs comes in. China also, when the Trump administration declared that it was going to fund a massive infrastructure investment plan two years ago, was very, very explicit about intending to be the one to benefit from that plan and to use it to, again, accelerate its infrastructure strategy and inject Chinese companies into core nodes within the U.S. system. So let's take this a step further and then we can bring Nate into this. It's not only that any actor is going to look at investment opportunities or public funds being available and how they can access that if they have an expertise or think they can offer some value. And obviously, if there's a return for them as well, 
But it sounds like you're arguing that China's intentions go beyond that. It's very strategic. It's more about capturing some distressed assets that may be strategically important to the United States or gaining a foothold in a key market to get that market share rather than any return on investment, and both to get more Chinese industrial materials and find markets for those, position its national champion, construction companies. But there is a coordinated approach to try to use our crisis and our response to our crisis to allow Beijing to further some of its strategic goals. Nate, am I capturing that correctly? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. And it speaks to the degree of centralized industrial planning that Beijing oversees and deploys through its national champions, whether they be state-owned enterprises or ostensibly private firms that are state-backed. China uses its vast subsidy and industrial control mechanisms to guarantee that those actors who go out into the world and compete for market share in the United States, they're backed by the state to guarantee that they're able to trade short-term profits for long-term positioning and sowing relationships of dependence, whether we're talking about critical minerals and resources or we're talking about critical infrastructures. China's play is to gain strategic footholds. It's not driven by quarterly returns and profit motivations in the short term. It's focused on positioning strategically to have course of leverage in the global system. We have this one quote that we, I think, have in the report, which is by an official in China's National Development and Reform Commission, where he writes that, in quote, in some strategic markets, market share is more important than short-term profit. And that's really just like the perfect summary of this approach. And then as Nate said, China uses that market share to ensure dependence on it and also then its ability to control larger industrial sectors or even national systems. Yeah. And it definitely was in the report. I think that was Chen uh, Jingming who may have said that. And so can either of you think of some specific instances after our Great Recession where China was able to execute the strategy and to gain some additional leverage or market or even prestige that it had lacked before by either exploiting distressed assets or taking advantage of U.S. recovery efforts? Yes, yeah, so I've already ruined the Huawei example, although I maintain that's a very good one because Huawei gets its inroads in U.S. telecoms that we're now like trying to rip out after the financial crisis. In the other direction, in terms of like critical raw inputs, China has this massive global investment in mines in pretty much all in 2009, but thereafter, especially in mines that have been forced to shutter because of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And that gives them dominance over critical raw inputs with limited supply that determine all of the emerging industries or legacy industries built on top of them. And obviously, we know from our own experience in metals and infrastructure construction that some state-owned enterprises were able to manage major construction projects and also get significant materials into some critical U.S. infrastructure as well, like the Bay Bridge in San Francisco a few years after the Great Recession. Just so, again, our listening audience knows, you're not making assertions here that aren't backed up by solid research. I mean, these are things that officials 
in China have actually said. I mean, they've telegraphed this. It's not like it's a secret. Am I getting that correct? Oh, That's absolutely right, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll post a link to the report. But what do you see as the downsides if China is successful again in gaining an additional foothold in our physical infrastructure or if we're trying to build out other critical systems, if there's an investment that's going to come to try to rebuild, restart, reimagine our economy at the end of this public health crisis? I think I can I can jump on that quickly first, Scott. And I think there's a range of implications and risks that we need to be monitoring and concerned about. The first order, which often comes up when you talk about Huawei, but I think is just as relevant across a range of infrastructures, is a basic informational access and espionage risk. So if Chinese-owned systems are being established, whether we're talking about infrastructures that are increasingly smart infrastructures and have sensors and data associated with them, it's likely that Chinese actors will have access or ability to manipulate that data. Certainly, that's part of the concern with Huawei. Increasingly, I think we've seen over time China's ability to erode our own industrial base. So if we're placing investments as a part of our recovery, there's a big economic security risk that if China is able to subvert those investments, they're gradually able to increase their market share and erode the base from which we are able to manufacture and supply our own domestic economy, which increases our dependence on Chinese supplies across the board. So I think there are these big industrial and economic security risks that from the Chinese conception are, again, and the Chinese sources will tell us this, they think of these as points of leverage that they can then hold over the United States that are tantamount to national security power themselves. And we're already so dependent in so many of these areas, like Chinese solar production, lithium-ion batteries, pharmaceuticals, as we're seeing in COVID. They dominate production in the markets in those. And that dominance largely comes from positioning after the 0809 financial crisis. And so then what happens at the next step? Like what happens if we let this fast forward once again? And also if that ends up being fueled by the U.S. investment that's designed, in fact, to reverse the trend. Thank you for that. And let's take this a step farther now, because in your report, it's well documented that Beijing not only has a strategy that you've described in very specific instances and more generally in the strategic sense. Also, they have targets in the United States. I think it's important for folks to know that this is a sophisticated strategy and that Beijing has, in fact, identified particular states, particular industries, particular sets of public officials that it thinks that it can utilize in these efforts. Right. So the U.S. has this whole apparatus that's supposed to protect from the kind of parasitic investment and influence operation that we're talking about here. And what China does is it looks at that apparatus and within its fragmentation, it finds nodes that it can co-op so that it can work around our protections. Local governments, which you just pointed to, are a prime thing, or even state officials and national government. China literally has a ranking of which state governments are most friendly to China and talks about using relationships with those in order to influence either local policies or national policies so it can obtain the kind of leverage or influence that it wants. And then also there are private sector mechanisms it uses, whether those are joint ventures or investments in 
ostensibly U.S. or other foreign companies that let it circumvent U.S. regulations, whether those are by American or investment review. China also explicitly builds factories in the U.S. so it can, again, circumvent these regulations and for the purpose only of doing so, so that it can present as you know, a U.S. company or a U.S. job creator, when in fact these are effectively shells used to bring Chinese goods and market share into the U.S. Thank you for pointing that out, because I can think, obviously, in the public transit space, the role of CRC, which is a state-owned enterprise that operates in rail, both freight and transit, but also even, you know, ostensibly more private companies, although they have deep ties to the Chinese governments and strategic alignment, companies like Fuyao Glass or BYD as well. And I would just say, I see this as a policy advocate show up where it is a, the argument that these Chinese companies are making is that well, now we're providing American jobs without focusing on the security aspects or the supply chain or the displacement that's occurred or the net job loss that has resulted. So this is not imaginary. This is definitely a strategy that Beijing has been and is implementing. So let me ask you before we go, and I'm going to again urge our listeners to pour over this report that Horizon Advisory has done, as well as numerous other specific reports that are available on their website. What do you think that policymakers, both within the administration, the regulatory agencies, and within the Congress should be thinking about now that we have pretty concrete evidence that Beijing intends to exploit a crisis? I think there are a number of key urgent requirements. Some are defensive. So we talk about the reality that Chinese localization practices produce net job losses, or we think about potential fraud, waste, and abuse that occurs throughout our procurement system with Chinese front operations like we're talking about. Um, I think there's defensive requirements to better identify and shut down these types of operations um, to make sure that any Chinese companies that are operating in the United States are adhering to the same business practices and expectations that any other actor would. And at the same time, I think there's a need for broader offensive thinking about how our reinvestment and recovery actions can be deployed at service of American workers and American industry to try to beat back some of the erosion that China's approach has caused and to hopefully help us to build out of this recovery in a way that gains relative to the Chinese, not loses positioning the way that I think that we've documented pretty well was the case in the great financial crisis in 2009. Nate, thank you for that. I think that the evidence that you've provided on both this and other issues is certainly gaining traction. And I think of Congress taking steps to limit the role of SOEs in our public transit market and the regulatory pushback with respect to Huawei. And I'm not going to pretend like any of this is perfect at this point, but I do think that there's some realization that this is a threat and a strategy that we need to take very seriously that goes beyond kind of philosophical considerations that various interest groups may have. And I think the research that you've done here and your ongoing efforts will be 
incredibly valuable to policymakers. So I wanted to thank you, Emily and Nate, for your great work on this and for making a vital contribution to a better understanding of the government of China's intentions with respect to the crisis at hand and looking to gain a a greater foothold in U.S. strategic interests. Scott, thank you. It's exciting to be talking to like-minded people and ones who can actually move this kind of thing forward. You bet. And I'm just going to say, Nate and Emily, you say you're not party people, but anytime there's a China policy pub quiz, I want you by my side. (laughs) And I mean it. Thanks very much, guys. And Be well, stay safe. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. And that will do it for the Manufacturing Report this week. To learn more about Horizon Advisory's latest report, you can visit horizonadvisory.org. As always, I want to thank AAM staff and Cat Adams in particular for their work to make this episode possible. And I want to thank you, the listeners, for engaging with us and for giving us some great episode ideas. Now, be sure to subscribe to The Manufacturing Report on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And please let us know what you think by leaving a review and a rating. You can find us online at AmericanManufacturing.org. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And you can always connect with us on Twitter at KeepItMadeInUSA. I'm Scott Paul. And until next time, together... We can keep it made in America.